Well, low church, if you would open to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, we will not be in the Gospel of John until after uh, the new year, the beginning of the new year. Uh, didn't want to take us deeper into the crucifixion to just leave for five weeks in the Advent series. So uh, today we will talk about biblical manhood. I want to start with 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. This is God's Word. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Father, Very blunt, very clear. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would make what you have put on the pages of Scripture as clear. These things are clear in your mind. Lord, we pray you'd make them clear to us. Be our teacher, illuminate, build us up. And Lord, we would even ask for empowering so that as men we could do what You've called us to do and not merely hear or agree with. But Lord, make us doers of this Word that we hear from Your Word today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I find uh, this passage really interesting. Um, You know, 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 13 there, where it says, act like men. And Paul is assuming that out of all churches, the church in Corinth would understand what that means. Act like men. Which seems to suggest that there's a way men should act that is not how women should act. And that he expected these men to know what that was. And, um, and so, it, you know, th- we, this is not a new topic for us as a church. We did two years on biblical manhood uh, in the men's internship where we read uh, close to 10 books on biblical manhood, spent hours in discussion uh, with many, many of our men in the church uh, on biblical manhood. Uh, we actually just, yesterday was supposed to be the start of many of these men's gatherings. Uh, weather did not allow for that. But one of the things I was going to say um, to the men yesterday was, what is more manly than to teach boys to be men? I mean, it really is one of the most manly things you could do is to train up a boy into manhood. And so we don't want to just have men's gatherings where we get together and just study and talk about manhood. We want to actually do manly things and help young men become uh, biblical, godly uh, men, and really to, to help the next generation with not only the things our own fathers passed on to us, but the things that our fathers should have passed on to us that we know are essential for manhood, that we pass that on to the next generation so that they can read that little uh, phrase, act like men, and know what that means and how to obey it. So here's what I want to do today. This is going to be very different than, a, than normally what we do. Uh, I'm going to preach topically, 
which I've done, uh, I could count on one hand probably the amount of topical sermons I've preached in 18 years. Um, but I want to give a twofold argument from Scripture that God designed men to rule with valor and that we must do so well since we will give an account on the final day. And then I want to end with four practical uh, things that every, any man here or even young man could begin to do to uh, immediately pursue this. So let me start by acknowledging um, there, has, there is no golden age of manhood, to my knowledge, historically, where you could point back and say, these guys nailed it, right? Look at them. All of them are perfectly embodying um, what biblical manhood is. We don't have a particular time in history where this was perfectly uh, demonstrated. So I'm not arguing today for a perfect execution of the biblical standard in anyone other than Jesus. Okay? But what I am arguing for is that there is a biblical standard. That there is a biblical standard and that that standard has sometimes been uh, pursued intentionally by men. And we would say those are good examples. But most of the time, it has been failed at. It has been misrepresented. The, the examples are bad. And, um, and those, those bad examples are absolutely devastating to the point where our culture right now doesn't just have a suspicion of manhood. There's an outright rejection of manhood, especially men who would assume uh, any type of leadership position. And so there's verses that I'm going to read today. This is just a little bit of a warning. Verses I'm going to read. I'm not even going to comment on them. Just read them. And to some people, they will sound like hate speech. They will sound like a type of bigoted, uh, misogynistic, patriarchal, abusive language. To read the verse without any comment on it whatsoever. Um, and, and that is in large part because of the failures that have taken place regarding manhood. Um, it, it's hard to deny that. I see, I see really two trends happening when it comes to manhood uh, in our day. One trend is that, that many men, I would say this is the majority, are running away from manhood as fast as they can. And I'll, I'll, I'll quote an author, this is not a, a Christian but a popular speaker said this, our culture has a notion that human beings in general, but especially men in particular, are malevolent and destructive forces in nature, which causes conscientious men to run for manhood in the opposite direction. So it's like if all people are basically destroyers and men especially, let me not be a man. Less, it, since I love humanity, children, women, right? That, that's one thing that's happening. People are running from this. And then at the other end, young men, in reaction to a lot of this, are intentionally running to any voices who will say something about what a man is. And they want to hear it. And they want to study it. And they want to think about it. I'm not just talking about in the church, but even in culture. Uh, any voice directly speaking to men and saying what Paul said, act like men, uh, they, they want 
to hear, which isn't, that, to say act like men, that isn't just saying that manhood is okay. It's saying it's good, which if I remember rightly, on the first page of the Bible, I think God was the first to say that when he created man. And he saw men, in fact, he didn't just say it's good. He said that about all the rest of the creation. But as soon as he made a male specimen, he said it's very good. Um, and, and so someone could say, well, pastor, yeah, keep reading. That man doesn't look very good. Next page. And I would say, yes, but neither does the woman. They've both fallen. They've both fallen. But notice this in Genesis 1. Before the fall, okay, before sin entered the world, God made man to rule over creation. Before sin, he is a ruler over creation, federal head of humanity, and then he makes a woman from his side to be with him uh, in this task, in this duty, but she is under him in terms of leadership and the children that would come from them. That's before sin entered the world. So God views male leadership or male rule or whatever you want to call it as good before sin. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That's plan A, not plan B. Helper fit for him. The original prototype, the idyllic form before sin is that man is ruling and a woman is made a helper fit for him. And I've said a lot of times, um, (laughs) because this lands on us different than this and you have to kind of point out, if that's an insult to anyone, it's an insult to the man who needs the helper. Not to the woman who's made to help, but the man who needs the helper. If anyone should be offended by that uh, verse, it would be the men. Um, But all it's telling us is that there's differences, right? Genetically, biologically, we know there's differences, but also differences in roles and responsibilities. So a lot of the roles of men and women are the same. Most of them are the same, but there's some that are different. So for example, the first thing said to the man uh, in Genesis 1 is be fruitful and multiply. Well, guess what? That's also said to the woman. The first thing said to the man is have dominion, or the second thing said to the man is have dominion. Well, guess what? The same thing is said to a woman at that same time. Uh, these, These first two commandments are given to both men and women. But on the dominion side, there's a difference in how men and women are to have dominion. You say, where do we see that? Well, we see it in Genesis 3. As soon as the curse is given, after sin comes, the man's curse is related to what? His primary area of dominion, which is cultivating the earth. It's by the sweat of your face you will work. It's related to his work outside the home. The curse for the woman is related to childbearing and in her posture, her heart posture toward the leadership of her husband. It's domestic primarily. Now that doesn't mean that men um it doesn't mean that men don't serve in the home. They do and, and should. It doesn't mean that women can never work outside of the home. They can. It just means there's primary areas of dominion 
in which men and women in different ways are to take dominion over the earth. Uh, That was God's original plan. Now, I'm I'm, I'm laying out some foundation here and then we're going to build on this in a second. Before the fall, God commanded Adam, okay? He commands Adam, uh, do not eat from the tree. When did Eve get that command? How did Eve get that command? Would be a better way to say it. She was supposed to get it through Adam. God told Adam that, and it's his job to tell Eve that. So that when the serpent would come to Eve, she's ready and equipped to deal with that. Adam gave it in part, uh, but didn't equip his wife well enough, it seems. After the fall, Eve eats the fruit first. But who does God come for? God comes for Adam and says, Adam, where are you? Why? Well, because Adam is the one in charge. He's the leader. He's the one who will be accountable uh, for his wife. As we move on in, in, in uh, the biblical narrative and you just keep going, these differences uh, begin to emerge and all the similarities begin to emerge. But one of the things I want to highlight today, this is interesting. So earlier this week, I was reading in uh, 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 9. And if you'll turn there, we're going we're gonna to be in 1 Chronicles a little bit this morning. And so I'm currently reading in my Bible, uh, one-year Bible reading plan, uh, reading through the Bible, and this is where I landed early this week. And um, it's a genealogy in Chronicles 9. And this genealogy, you shouldn't skip those. They, they actually are there for a reason, believe it or not. Uh, the genealogies are important. What, what this particular genealogy reminds us of is that these men that have lived before us were faithful to the Lord. And so I'm reading in, in 1 Chronicles 9 things like head of the father's houses, head of the father's houses, head of the father's houses, son of, son of, son of, son of. And then it gives three categories of men who were to lead Israel, priests, Levites, and temple servants. And then you see these lists under these three categories begin to unfold. So it says of the priests. And then it lists 19, I'm not going to read all of this today or we would spend our whole time reading, it's a lot of content I'm going to cover, summing this up, of the priests, and it lists 19 men, son of, son of, son of, besides their kinsmen, heads of the father's houses, then it says 1,760 mighty men for the work of the service of the house of God. That's verses 10 to 13, or starting in verse 10, it says, of the priests, Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Zadok, the son of, and then it lists 19 men, kinsmen of their father's houses, Korahites, who were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the threshold of the tent, listen, as their fathers had been in charge of the, of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance, Phineas, the son of Eliphazar, was chief officer over them. I want you to hear the, the ways in which their work is described. Chief officer over, been in charge of. 
uh, 212 were established by David and Samuel for their office. And it lists in verse 25, their kinsmen who were in the village were obligated to come in every seven days in turn to be with these for their four chief gatekeepers who were Levites who were entrusted to be over the chamber and the treasures of the house of God. And then it goes on and it says uh, that they had a duty of opening it every morning and they were uh, they were they had charge of the utensils of the of the service for they were required to count them when they were brought in and taken out others were appointed over the furniture over the holy utensils and it goes on and on and it and here's some of the categories that it begins to unfold men are financial administrators uh, we we see men as uh, levites and priests to teach the scriptures We see men over the fine flour, the wine, the oil, the incense, the spices prepared to mixing, uh, prepared the mixing of the spices. Men are entrusted to the making of flat cakes, had charge of the showbread to prepare it every Sabbath. The men are singers, heads of fathers' houses of the Levites. They were in the chamber of the temple, free from other service. It says these are heads of the fathers' houses, according to their generations, leaders to be who lived in Jerusalem. And then it gives this other category, men in the chambers of the, of the temple day and night. There's a type of security, it sounds like. So I, I'm reading through this genealogy and I'm thinking, all right, it doesn't list one woman, every single one of these men who are serving in the temple are men, and they seem to be faithful. And then I thought about if someone walks in or when someone comes into our uh, our church building on a Sunday morning, uh, what, will, what will they see? They will see men with instruments preparing to lead in song, other men on the soundboard, other men uh, headed upstairs to teach in the catechism, other men uh, headed back to the back room for corporate prayer, other men on security rotation, other men greeting at the doors, other men in the kitchen preparing communion elements, and then later passing out those elements. Men uh, gathering tithes afterward. Uh, they wouldn't have even seen the men that came up here during the week who were doing uh, mowing the grass, who were uh, doing uh, maintenance on the facility and fixing things, building things. Men who were up here doing counseling all during the week. Um, other men who would be on their way here uh, preparing their families with the tone, which men, we set the tone for Lord's Day worship, we get to worship with the church today. And then as our service starts, just like the Old Testament, men and women serve in these different roles. So let me put a passage before us in the New Testament. First uh, Timothy 2.8 says, I desire that, that in every place that is place of worship, men, and I'm going to highlight men and women here because Paul does, men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with the prop- what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Let her. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And I know there's many in our day who goes, oh, that's cultural. Well, it doesn't seem it is because 
Paul roots it in the created order, the verse that follows that says, for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So here's what I'm trying to highlight. In corporate worship, in the old covenant and the new, God's place of worship isn't genderless. It isn't genderless. He, he does actually specify that there's certain things men and women should do. We all come to worship. We're all equal before God. But there are different roles and responsibilities. It's undeniably clear in the Old Testament, and we could build that out in the New as well. And I am, I, I, honestly, I'm privileged to, um, to pastor a church with women who aren't ashamed of that, who are confident in your God-given roles, and, uh, and see that as good for yourself and your kids, that men serve as they are and, and women serve as they are. And, and when men, church, we know this, when men will, will do what God has commanded us to do as men, people are blessed. It's a blessing. But when men fail, it is devastating. It is absolutely devastating. Um, I got a call this week from a, a man who I haven't seen in 15 years. And he began to tell me, uh, he, he was, I knew him in college and he was older than me. He already had a family um, and he was serving in ministry at that time. He went into the military. He's way up in the military now and he's, de- he's deployed. Um, but his family was with him. He begins to tell me how his family is not with him anymore. Um, how each, he went through each member of his family and told me how every one of them has left him. Um, it was truly devastating to hear. Uh, I grieved with him. I prayed with him. Um, I exhorted him in some ways I felt needed. And he admitted to me, uh, I failed in some major ways in my leadership. Significant ways. And he, and he said, I'm seeing things now that I wish I would have seen years ago. And so, brothers, here, here's what I would like to say to us. When God gives leadership to us, whether it be in the church or the home, He defines what that looks like. We don't get to define what that looks like. We don't take that lead or rule type category and fill it in with our own meaning. It's not a domineering leadership where when your kids finally get old enough to leave your house, they turn around embittered at you and they're so full of anger and frustration that they don't want to come back. And then your wife looks at you and says, it's your fault. That's every man's worst nightmare, I think. It's also not a type of servant leadership, and I use that term on purpose, not that there isn't a good form, but there's also a bad form of servant leadership, where you become the servant uh, of your family so that everything your wife says, everything your kids ask for, you do, and you aren't leading at all. They're leading. You're not ruling. They're ruling. And that also has destructive consequences. And I'm not saying this because um, 
Well, I'm saying this because I think the Bible does. And I want to lay out two categories here that I think are helpful for us. And, you know, I would like to unpack this more in the days to come because I think there's a lot of ways that we could anger our children as men. I want to lay out two uh, primary categories of ways you could, you could really anger your children. And one, the first one's obvious. You could push, uh, push them so hard, you could hit so hard, you could yell so loud that you damage them. Uh, and, and that would be an obvious evil. The other way that often doesn't get noticed to ruin your family is that you don't rebuke discipline. You expect so little. You allow so much room for self-expression and so little guidance that they grow up and hate you. And that is also a way that you can anger your children. That's not just my observation. That's not some sort of pop psychology type of discovery. The Bible gives us this wisdom. First uh, Kings, rather, chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to this. His father had never at any time, his, this is talking about David, had at, never at any time displeased him by asking, what have you done? So David is this great king in Israel, yet he seems to be it's suggesting a distant father allowing way too much room for self-expression. And David, we know he had around 20 kids. Uh, we don't know most about, uh, we don't know a lot about many of those kids, but we do know about a few of those kids. And uh, it is not good what we find out about some of his children. You know, sometimes David gets really glorified, and for many good reasons, but we think, oh, but he had that one sin, you know, with Bathsheba. Well, actually, he had more than just one sin. He has a track record of really failing as a father. And um, his refusal, uh, the refusal of David to discipline his son Amon, triggered several events. I'll remind us that uh, David's oldest son is named Amnon. And he grew up to be a selfish man. He was actually so consumed with lust for his half-sister Tamar that he violates her in uh, absolutely horrible ways. Absalom, uh, the brother of Tamar, ended up murdering her half-brother, uh, his half-brother Amnon, in revenge. That's in 2 Samuel 13. And Absalom becomes so angry with his father, David, who didn't deal with the situation that he eventually, Absalom, revolts against his father and ultimately uh, ends up being killed in war. So Abs uh, Absalom is the third of David's sons, the third oldest, uh, and he planned a murder of his half-brother for years. This wasn't like a quick moment of anger. This is a plotted out, premeditated murder. Adonijah, uh, the fourth of David's sons, dishonored him by trying to wrongly exalt himself. And there's a long story about how he kind of jockeyed for the throne wrongly. And so the few, the few children of David that we actually know about is not much good. And so you see a man who's very faithful in God's work in one area and very negligent in another area, which is very instructive to us as men. 
And here, here's, what I've, here's something that occurred to me this week. Maybe I should have seen this earlier. Um, every time you see a parental failure in Scripture that I can remember, okay, I didn't reread the whole Bible this week to figure this out, so if I'm wrong, point it out. It is, to my memory, I don't remember any point where a woman is chastised and rebuked for her failure in discipline and discipleship of her children. But I see many times that men are rebuked for that. Every time there's a failure on the parental front, the man gets blamed. God holds the man accountable, not the woman. You think, did no women ever fail? No, of course they did. But they aren't, in Scripture, corrected for that in the ways that the men are. Something to pay attention to. We know in uh, Ephesians 6, fathers are to bring up their children in the padeia and the nothesia of the Lord. He says fathers are to do this. And this is most significant in Proverbs, which, you know, the book of Proverbs is, is 31 chapters, right? But that first 30 chapters is a father speaking to his children. The last chapter is a mother speaking to the, to the son. But the first 30 chapters is a father speaking to his, his son and teaching him things about life. And the Hebrew word that means to speak a proverb means to rule. And so you have a father. The book of Proverbs is a father teaching his son to rule. In every way, he's called to rule. Whether it be ruling his own emotions, ruling his money and possessions, his job and career, his bodily impulses, leading a family, everything. The Father's teaching him everything he needs to know. And so God designed men to rule, and when they do it rightly, it's a blessing. Now here's what I want to shift in uh, 1 Chronicles 9. There are, uh, there's this shift that occurs into from Levites priests and temple servants, the men leading in that capacity, to then the next chapters, the next two chapters, it shifts to men leading in warfare. And and I find this interesting how how this is laid out. So in 1 Chronicles 12 and 13, at this moment in redemptive history, I need to catch this up just so we have proper context for this. We're in the Old Covenant. Temple worship is central uh, and, and, and obviously, he just laid out that men had the lead on that. Uh, they were responsible for all of that corporate worship. Um, and then Israel is also transitioning the kingship at this point from, uh, from Saul to David. And Saul has been hunting David, trying to kill David. And now at this point in First Chronicles 12, David is already king. And Saul, in the chapter before this, has died. And by the way... Um, David, Davidic kingship, opposing Davidic kingship is to oppose the messianic line. It's not a small thing. To to kill David before he comes king is to ruin God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Which is what Saul was seeking to do. So listen, 1 Chronicles 11.2, listen to this. It says, the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So so all these men, thousands of men in Israel knew that David must be 
shepherd of Israel, king of Israel. This is my will. They knew that. Now, they didn't know the depths of that that we do in terms of the Christ-centeredness of that, but they knew David must be king. God's kingdom must be ruled by this messianic ruler, this Davidic king who would be enthroned over Israel and then Israel over the nations. They knew that. And then thousands of men unify themselves with this single purpose to advance the mission and to exalt this king, which is a preservation of the gospel, to put it in our new covenant terms. And so 1 Chronicles 12.38 says this, All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron, to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. So every man of those thousands of men who are gathering for this mission are not on the front lines. Uh, They aren't all mighty men of the, the most mighty of the men. Some of them are, but many of them aren't. But they're all doing something. They're all, they all have an instrument. They all have a, a tool. They all have a, a weapon. They all have, they're all doing something to further the mission. And they're of single mind to make David king. And, and brothers, here's the parallel that we need to be able to already be seeing at this point. Uh, David's kingship is long gone. David, his bones are in the ground. But Jesus and that Davidic king that David was has been ultimately personified in Christ. David was a type of what Christ was to be as an eternal king. And do we not have a mission to advance his kingdom? And is our li- are our lives as men not to advance his kingly rule? So men exist to advance, protect, financially fund, advance Christ's eternal reign. Men exist. That's why we have families. That's, that's why we have workplaces and that's why uh, we live where we live is to subject our workplaces, our families, the nations to the King of Kings. That's why every man exists. It's to bring all things into subjection to Christ's Lordship. That's your mission in life, brother. That is it. And I just found it interesting this week studying this this phrase, men of valor. You ever heard that phrase? If you've read the Bible, you've heard it many times. It's actually that phrase, men of valor, comes up 25 times in Scripture. First in Deuteronomy, then in Joshua, Judges, first and second Samuel, Kings, first and second Chronicles, and Nehemiah. 25 times, men of valor. And the way these men are described is certainly not cowardly, lazy, distracted, but men who took the mission of God, the people of God, the worship of God as their primary aim and led with zeal. They're not leading for self-serving purposes. They have a mission. Brothers, we exist for the king. Our mission in life is to advance His eternal kingdom, to bring everything into subjection to Him. That's why we have families. 
You should have a wife for that reason, children for that reason, a job for that reason, a church home for that reason, money and possessions for that reason. Gifts, talents, skills, knowledge, intellect, everything, breath, life in your body for that reason. It's for Him. And I want to make a connection to a New Testament parable that I think is very significant. Matthew 25 gives a parable of the talents. And again, this applies to women and kids as well. But I want to mainly use this to speak to the men right now. Where Jesus reminds us of stewardship, which I don't think is just money. I don't think the talent just means money. It, it, it does, but it's more than that. It's a stewardship of possessions, time, talents, treasure, everything we've been given. And he doesn't want us to bury it, but to multiply it. So look at Matthew 25, 14, and I'm just going to read a portion of this. For it will be like a man who is going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave how many? Five talents, to another, two, to another, one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. So the first two men, one is given five talents, and the other, two. And when their life is over and they stand before the master, whenever that master returns and holds them accountable, He commends both of these men, the five talents or the two, and says to them, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. We we want that affirmation. Okay, We we, We should live for that affirmation from the king. The five talent, the two talent, they multiplied what they had been given and they received that affirmation. And they didn't multiply it for themselves, but for the sake of their master. They multiplied what they had been given. The third man was given one talent, and what did he do? Nothing. He buried it. He buried it. And then the master sent him to outer darkness. This is very sobering, brothers. This day of reckoning when God will call us to account like He called Adam. When He said to Adam, where are you? He will say to us, what did you do with the wife I gave you? What did you do with the children I gave you? What did you do with the money and the possessions I gave you? The the gifts and talents, the abilities. What did you do for my kingdom? With those things. We will give an account. And we should be terrified. Of bearing that talent. That should terrify us. Maybe the most frightening thought any man could have. Is to bury the talent. I I bring up this issue because. Fear of responsibility. is 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 a really dominant fear for men. According to all the psych, like this is more than a pastoral observation. This is a cultural observation, socio, uh, sociological observation that many men fear responsibility, 
And I would say it's because they fear not doing something good with that talent they've been given. Kind of dropping the ball. Not, not handling that talent well. There's a fear. What's interesting is the, the, the person in the parable who's actually fearful and does nothing with that talent. Listen to what it says about him. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered, scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. We should be very terrified of taking everything that we've been given and just putting it away. Burying it. Because we're scared, well, it's better to just bury it than to squander it and, and it just kind of fall apart under my care. You know, it is true that some receive five talents and they'll do more with those five talents than you do with your two talents. That's reality. But it's pride to say either I must have the greatest talent or I must be most talented or I'll do nothing. That's pride. It's a dangerous way to live. Um, I, I want this to encourage us. I know this is scaring us probably more than encouraging us, but I want us to hear the connection between First Chronicles 9 and, and Matthew 25. In both of these passages, some men had more and less responsibility than others. Right? Some men had more and less responsibility than others. Every Israelite male wasn't the, 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 uh, the warriors on the front lines. Every one of them was not called David's mighty men. There were only some men who played that role. Most of the men were just men, which is okay, it seems. Everyone in Matthew 25 wasn't given five talents. Some were given two talents. It doesn't seem that it mattered to Christ if one had five talents and multiplied it or two talents and multiplied it, as long as they multiplied it. I don't think Jesus is as concerned with how many talents you have, but what you make of what's been given to you. I think that's the point. There are men playing instruments, others singing, others making showbread, utensils for service, building of the walls, teaching, overseeing, giving financially, uh, more than other people might have, uh, offering sacri uh, sacrifices in the temple, others standing guard outside, one with a sword in his hand, another a javelin, one uh, taking a few enemy soldiers out, others taking whole armies out. Some have names listed, most don't have their name listed. And the point isn't what job or task you're doing in the kingdom. The point is that you're doing something for the advancement of the kingdom. Or don't. And then give an account. That's how it reads. And I, and I, I believe the best about all the men here that I know uh, that you want to stand there on that final day like I do and here, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done well with your two 
You've done well with your five. You've multiplied it, made something of it. And so I want to just end with four uh, really practical. These will be short and we can build on these in Citigroup. But four things to get us started. Obviously more could be said, but this is a good start. Number one, pray the Lord's Prayer daily. Pray the Lord's Prayer daily. I think every Christian should do this. Uh, Start your day with the Lord's Prayer, but think about how this might reorient the whole way you approach your day. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To put that in your mind at the beginning of every day, do you think maybe over time, and then praying that, literally praying that to the Lord and asking that you might begin to approach all of your life as kingdom advance, as doing the will of the king? Could that increase your fruitfulness? I submit to you, it most definitely will. I think it's in every man's best interest to begin our day reading the scriptures and praying the Lord's prayer. Second, commit to a local church. Commit to a local church. Uh, Submit yourself, if you have a wife and family, submit them to a local church and to the elders of that church. If not this one, a different gospel preaching Bible-believing church. But find one in which to submit yourself and to commit to serve and bear burdens for people and love and care for Christ's bride. Um, God wants the church to be filled with men. It says lifting up holy hands, which I don't take to be absolutely literal as much as these men are leading in zeal. These men have the most zeal. When when you come into a gathering of God's people, the men are zealous. They're not falling asleep and apathetic about the things of God. They're leading in zeal for worship. And I'll tell you, look, we can have, if if, if our churches, and this, uh, there's a lot of churches where the women are the leaders in zeal in the church, and, and even the kids are excited, but the men are, they're mentally checked out. And those can't become strong, mature churches. They just can't. Nothing against the women or the children. They just can't become strong churches. By design, the church is to be led by men. And when the men don't care, everything begins to fall apart. But get the men zealous. Get the men to own the responsibility God's put on us and the women and children thrive. And that's, that's how God has designed it. And it's good. Third, fight one battle at a time. Fight one battle at a time. Think about these soldiers. Every good soldier knows you don't win the war all at once. It's one shot, it's one strike, it's one weapon, it's one person at a time that you take down the army. One day at a time. If that war lasts six months or three years, one day at a time. One strategic move at a time. Brothers, win tomorrow's battles 
tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, Jesus said. Fight one battle at a time. Fight the battles you need to fight in the morning. And, after you, and when you get to the afternoon, deal with those ones. And then at night, you've got something else. That's, sorry, that's life in a fallen world. That's what we have. But be strategic. Fight one battle at a time. And then fourthly and lastly, and maybe most importantly, put as much weight on your shoulders as you can. Put as much weight on your shoulders as you can. I I say this at some level from experience, but mainly from speaking to many other men. Don't wait until you think you're able to shoulder more weight. Take the extra weight, put it on your shoulders, and that extra weight is actually what strengthens you toward the type of manhood you should aspire to. The extra weight builds that in you. That's how it's designed to work. The weight of responsibility makes the man. That's very different than how most people think. They think, well, I'm not really ready for that. I don't think I can take that on. No, put it on your shoulders and the extra weight, by God's grace and help, will make you. And and to bring it back to the parable thing, uh, don't be always satisfied with just having two talents. Ask for a third. There's a time to do that. To say, Lord, if you would entrust to me more weight, I'll take it for your sake. Think back to uh, last few weeks in the Gospel of John. The Apostle John is standing there at the foot of the cross. He's about to write a good portion of the New Testament. He's about to care for these churches about to write the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the the gospel of John. He he has a lot of work coming up, a lot of weight he's about to bear in the kingdom. But Jesus looks down at him and says, behold your mother. Here's some extra weight for you to bear, John. As if he didn't have enough already. Here's some extra weight. And what is John's knee-jerk reaction? That very hour he took her to his home. I'm advocating that the the general disposition we have as men should be to lean into responsibility. Not pull away. Not be fearful. Lean into it. Now I'm not advocating you take every responsibility out there and crush yourself. Okay, we're talking be wise here. but to naturally lean into the responsibility. So when an opportunity comes up, hey, here's a godly Christian girl. I'm single. I want to get married one day. Here's a godly girl. I'll take it. I'll take her. I'll care for her covenantally. I'll love her. You hear God's command then to be fruitful and multiply. Children are a blessing. And you go, you know what? Let's let's believe that. Let's believe that that, that God's right. Here's an opportunity for a promotion at work. Extra people to lead. Maybe more hours to work. Maybe more responsibilities and more money. To not just go, oh no, that's more weight. But to step forward and say, I'll, I'll do that for the sake of others. I see ways in which this could multiply love and good works. 
Help me, Lord, to shoulder this. Here's a need in the church. And you don't just go, well, I'm sure somebody else will take it. No, you step up and say, I'll do it. I can handle that. And beyond our families in church, in the community, God placed us in a very needy city. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's a lot of people's lives that are being wrecked with all sorts of addictions. Drug addictions. Substance abuse addictions. We have a counseling center we've started to try to minister. Some of you men need to get trained in biblical counseling and say, I'll shoulder some responsibility and help these men. Meeting, you know, abortion is a huge problem still. There's a lot of people who feel like they can't have their babies. What if more men stood up and said, we'll help you with this. Our family will help you to keep this baby. We'll do everything we can so that you can father this child. Our culture is very terrified of responsibility, the men. Biblical manhood takes the opposite approach. We look for it. And we shoulder it for Christ's sake. We don't just spend all our money and time trying to buy bigger, nicer, cooler things to look successful, to look manly. Go to the gym, get a bigger truck, buy expensive things. Everybody will think I'm manly. It's not manly. Necessarily, if you don't have any weight on your shoulders, for real things that matter. Look, you say, give us a, what is the best example of this? The, the best example of a man putting weight upon his shoulders is Christ bearing the cross. How can you argue with that? What does a real man look like? Christ with the cross on his shoulders. Taking responsibility for the sins of mankind. For all women, children, boys, and other men. That's manhood perfectly personified. And look, we have crosses to bear. They're little crosses though. They're not His cross. Only one man could bear the weight of responsibility for all. And that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, as we prepare our hearts to go to the table, um, get all your confidence for the type of man you are to be, women and children and everyone else here, all the things God has called us to be. We get our confidence, we get our strength from Christ, from His example and from the finished work He completed on our behalf. If you're baptized in His name, a believer, in Christ for salvation, uh, please come. Take this supper with us. Strengthen yourself in the Lord at the table, remembering what He's done for you. Uh, anyone who is not and is going to refrain from taking the supper, uh, in the red bulletins are some meaningful prayers you can pray uh, in this time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, oh Lord, This is a, a strange day we live in, Lord. Things that were so basic for so long. Men and women are no longer 
acceptable to talk about in so many places. Much less to try to embody all of these things. But Lord, our world needs to see this rightly. And the church and our families and our children and our wives. And so Lord, would You help us as men for the sake of those who want this and for the sake of those who don't. Lord, would You help us to do what You've called us to do for Your name's sake and for the sake of Your kingdom. And Lord, remove all pride. Remove all arrogance. Remove any inclination in the heart of any man to do this for self-serving reasons. And we pray You would give us a passion and a zeal for Your kingdom and Your righteousness so that You get the praise that You deserve. And so, Father, give us wisdom on these things. Lord, as we come to the table, remind us of what manhood, the great and final Adam, did to show all of us not only what manhood looks like, but what true humanity looks like and must be and do. We thank You, Jesus, for dying for us, for taking responsibility for sins You didn't commit, and bearing the punishment for those on our behalf. We are grateful and we praise You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.